Well, good morning. You guys there? Good morning. <laughs> so does anyone have a smell? But when they smell this smell, they immediately just have great memories just flood into their mind. Just when you smell this one particular thing, you are just transported in your mind back to a wonderful place. For me, that smell is blueberry muffins. And so every Saturday morning growing up, my mom and dad would make blueberry muffins. And so my favorite moment of every single week is when I would wake up on Saturday morning, I wouldn't even have to open my eyes and I would just, like, ah, it's Saturday. It's time to sleep in, watch football, relax, just have a nice, slow day. It's just that smell immediately triggers me back to that point in time. In the passage that Mark read for us, John seems to go out of his way to include one little detail particularly one little smell that I think is going to radically transform how we read and how we understand this passage. So the disciples had been out on their boat fishing all night and Jesus came along the shore and he called them out. And when John said, it is the Lord, Peter got all excited. This is the resurrected Jesus. This is his savior. He's back. He's alive. So Peter jumps into the water. He swims to shore. He's excited to see Jesus again. And when he gets to the shore, he stops in his tracks because he saw a charcoal fire. This is not the first time that a charcoal fire has popped up in the book of John. So keep your finger on chapter 21, but just real quickly turn back to chapter 18, verse 17, chapter 18. And at this point, Jesus has been betrayed and pretty much all the disciples have scattered, but Peter is still following Jesus at a distance. So he's trying to, trying to track with Jesus. And in chapter 18, verse 17, we read that the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So you can turn back to chapter 21. And because smell is the sense most tightly um, associated with memory, I think that when Peter smelled this charcoal fire again, that he was immediately transported in his mind back to the last time that he had smelled a charcoal fire. He was immediately reminded of the time that he had denied Jesus three times. And so Peter went from being just over the top, excited, exuberant, so happy to see Jesus to when he got to Jesus and smelled that smell. Then all of a sudden he felt shame and guilt because he was reminded of his own betrayal. And, and so this passage, this conversation, this interaction that we're going to be studying between Jesus and Peter, this interaction is like that first time where you know that you've wronged somebody and this is the first time that you're seeing them again. You know that you're in the wrong, but you just, you can't even make eye contact with them. It's that, it's where your whole body feels like your stomach when it twists and turns in a knot right before you throw up. It's that anxiety inducing tension. So, so that's what Peter is feeling when he runs and swims up to Jesus and he smells the charcoal fire. He is just 
hating himself right now. And notice that Jesus is not quick to relieve this tension. He doesn't get right to saying anything. He doesn't get right to the forgiving, right to the restoring. He says, hey guys, let's, let's eat breakfast. And then in verse 15, he says, only after they had finished eating breakfast did Jesus say something. And so they just had a very long, very quiet, very uncomfortable meal. The only sound they heard was the, the waves crashing on the beach, the crackle of the fire, the sound of each man just, you know, chewing meat off the bone. So there was just this shame and anxiety and, and guilt and tension building up in Peter. So Jesus just, he let him sit in it for a while. And after Peter was very uncomfortable, Jesus said to him, Simon, just another name for Peter, do you love me more than these? And the these that I think that Jesus is referring to is the other disciples, you know, around the campfire. So Simon, just a few days ago, you said that you were willing to follow me to my death, that you would die before that you denied me. Just a few days ago, you were the one that took out your sword and cut off a Roman soldier's ear. So you're always quick to act. You're always quick to talk. Now on the other side of betraying me, now what do you have to say? Do you, do you still love me? Are you a man of your word? Do you love me as much as these other disciples do? And this time, I have to imagine that Peter answered without his usual brashness. His youth and inexperience, his, just his youthful exuberance, that, that, that's been beaten out of him at this point. He knows that he's not as strong as he thinks that he is. And so much more humbly this time, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And if I were Peter, here's the answer that I would have expected from Jesus. No, you don't. How dare you say that you love me? Just three days ago, when a little girl asked if you would even associate with me, you denied me. You were this weak, small, fickle, spineless little disciple who is all talk. So don't you dare say that you love me. That's the answer that I would have expected. That's the answer that Peter deserved. But, but like he has just over and over and over throughout his life and ministry and throughout John's gospel, Jesus responds with grace. Instead of dropping the hammer and coming down hard on Peter, he says to him, feed my sheep. A.K.A. Peter, I knew that you were going to fail. I knew you were going to betray me. I predicted that. But I have prayed for you. That even though Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail ultimately. So I knew that there would be a moment where if I took a snapshot of your life, that it would look like your faith had hit rock bottom. I knew that that would happen in one moment, but I have prayed for you that ultimately your faith would not fail and that you would return and strengthen your brothers. And that moment has come. So I still love you. I still forgive you. You're still one of my sheep. Welcome back to the flock. Welcome back to the family. You are one of mine. And, and we don't know how Peter responded. Maybe he just stammered at the grace that Jesus showed him. Maybe they had a, a really long conversation. You know, we only have the Cliff Notes version. But I'm sure that after that first question, when Jesus forgave Peter and restored him and reinstated him as one of his disciples, I'm sure that Peter assumed they were good. 
Jesus confronted me about my sin. I confessed it. I repented of it. He forgave me. So, so the relational scales are back to even. That there's no tension. There's no unresolved issues. We've talked about everything. We're good. We can move on. So they keep eating for a little while. And Jesus asked Peter again, do you love me? And I think that would have confused Peter. Like they, they, they had just had this conversation. They had just gotten their relational scales back to even. So Peter thought, okay, well, I, I betrayed him pretty bad. Sometimes it takes a few, a few conversations to really restore the relationship. But, but now that, you know, I've confessed and repented again, and Jesus has forgiven me now, now definitely we're good. There's nothing else to talk about. We can move on and forget about it. But then for a third time, Jesus asked him, do you love me? And in verse 17, we read that Peter was grieved because Jesus had asked him this question for a third time. So let's ask ourselves, why would Jesus ask this question three times in a row? If he's going to ask the same question, get the same answer, and then give the same response, why bother doing it two and three times? And if it's the exact same every time, why did Peter only start to grieve and to cry on the third one? Why didn't he have that same response on the first and the second one? This is why I think that the presence of the charcoal fire is so important. Because as they were having this conversation, Peter was reminded the last time that he was around a charcoal fire, he was denying his Savior three times. And this time, as he, as he is around a charcoal fire, his Savior is restoring him three times. Jesus is restoring Peter in a way that mirrors Peter's denial. And so as, as deep as a, a hole that Peter has dug himself into, that is how deep Jesus is willing to go to forgive and to restore Peter. Okay, so, so let's, let's meditate on this for a moment. After that first conversation, after that first Q&A, do you love me? Yes. Okay, feed my sheep. They were good. The relationship was restored. In a, you know, official, on paper, legal sense, the, the relational scales were back to even. There was nothing left to say. So I think that the reason that Jesus wanted to have this conversation a second and a third time is because he was trying to take uh, this forgiveness and this restoration, he was trying to take it off the page and make it 3D and apply it in a very real way to his relationship with Peter. Jesus wanted Peter to, to not just know that he was forgiven, he wanted Peter to actually feel it in his heart and in his bones. He wanted it to be a tangible reality in his life. So every week when Mark and I meet for a sermon prep meeting, one of the questions that we ask of every single passage that we study is, how can this passage help instill a gospel culture at Redemption Parker? And so it's one thing to have gospel doctrine, and I will go to my grave fighting for gospel doctrine. It is vital, it is necessary. The moment that a church abandons the truth of God's word, the moment that they, they reject scripture and walk away from it, and they have just signed their death warrant and they are on limited time. But equally as important as having a gospel doctrine is having a gospel culture. 
And by culture, I just mean that the doctrines that we agree to on paper, they don't just stay there. They come off of the page and they affect us and they change us and they soften us. It's not just something that we give mental assent to, not just as a theological category, but it is the gospel actually come to life and applied in our lives. So that there is a humility and a softness and a gentleness about God's people because of what they know to be true. And so there are a million different ways that we as a church can pursue gospel culture. Uh, But there is one way that this passage specifically highlights, and that is how do we as a church receive and welcome people who, like Peter, have had failures of faith? When a sinner walks through the doors of our church, how do we as a church recognize them and treat them knowing what they have done? And so to kind of get at this, let me ask you a question. How many of us have in our minds a hierarchy of sins? How many of us think that some sins are worse than others? So, so if I listed off a, a list of sins, say there's gossip, getting drunk, cheating on your spouse, and murder. I'm sure that we would say that murder is worse than getting drunk and that cheating on your spouse is worse than gossiping. And, and, and I want to be careful here because I do believe that different sins have different consequences. And so in terms of the social impact that sins have on us and the people around us, yes, murder is worse than gossiping. But James 2.10 says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become accountable for all of it. So it's like if a rock has ever hit your windshield or if you've ever thrown a rock into a pond, the rock only hits at one point, but the effects of that rock hitting here, it spreads everywhere. And so if you have broken one of God's laws, then you are accountable for breaking all of them. And so while different sins have different consequences, any sin committed against an infinitely holy God is considered infinitely offensive. So hear this, RP. It is impossible to receive someone and genuinely welcome them into our church if you believe that they need Jesus more than you do. If you, in the back of your mind, see someone and you are thinking about them and defining them by their sin, if you think, oh, that's, that's a big sinner, that's a special sinner, I think just the fact that that category exists in our minds is a sign that there is some of this Pharisee pride in our hearts, that because of our good works, because we keep the law, that God loves us more, and therefore we don't need Jesus as much as that big sinner. So so how do we as a church welcome and receive people who have fallen away and had failures of faith in a gospel culture way? Well, one thing to notice is that having a gospel culture does not mean that sin gets swept under the rug. Okay, Jesus did not ignore Peter's betrayal and sin. He got to the bottom of it. He had three conversations about it. He was going to get to the heart of the issue, and he was going to uh, get to the root of it, and he was going to deal with it. 
And so having a gospel culture and having uh, grace does not mean that there are not consequences. Grace means that there are consequences. I just love you enough to walk with you through those consequences. And so one thing for us to remember is that while we do not take sin lightly, it does not get swept under the rug. But once sin has been confessed, and once it has been repented of, then Jesus went the extra steps necessary to make Peter actually feel in a very real, tangible, emotional way like he belonged and that he was welcomed back. So just very practically here at RP, what that means is that I don't care if you are a saintly grandmother who has not missed church in 50 years or if you were out on the street selling drugs last night. When you walk through the door, you are both in equal need of Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. That is how we will build a gospel culture. When all of us recognize that we are broken, desperate, needy, Sinners, completely reliant on the grace of God. And so to the people who are church members or who in any way call RP their church home, let's just be a little more gracious and a little less judgmental towards people who walk through our doors either for the very first time or for the first time in a long time. And and to the person who wouldn't consider themselves a, a church insider, um, you know, maybe you're like Peter in this situation. Maybe you are the offender and the abuser. So maybe you've cheated on your spouse. Maybe you've gotten drunk again. Maybe you're embezzling money from your company. Or, or if you're not Peter, if you're not the abuser, the offender, maybe you are the abused. And so maybe you're the one who's been walked out on, or you've been physically abused in the past or spiritually abused just over the last few months of spending time with everybody in the church. That seems to be a very common thing is that people are coming to RP from, uh, they've just been beat up by their old church and it's just a miracle that they're even here today. Um, and, And so to both of those people, I want to tell you, we're not the perfect church. Not by any means. We, we are a sinful church because we are full of sinners. But what I hope that you will find here at RP is a gospel culture where it is okay to not be okay. Jesus will meet you where you're at. If you are messed up and broken or desperate, then you are in the right place. The only qualification that we ask when you walk through this door is that you admit that you don't deserve to be here. So I hope that you will find people here who have encountered Jesus in such a way that they can admit their sin and they can join you in crying out to Jesus for help. And so for most of this conversation, Jesus is just going to these extraordinary links to show grace to Peter, to make him feel welcome to receive him back. And at the very end of their conversation, Jesus is going to extend an offer of mission and discipleship to Peter. He's going to say, follow me. But before he gets to that end, he wants to uh, talk about one more thing. He wants to talk about something that is a little jarring to us and might not make much sense at, at first glance. Jesus wants to talk about death. So pick up in verse 18 with me. In verse 18, Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And so at that time, to have your, your hands stretched out like Jesus is talking about, that was just an expression uh, for being crucified. And so it's not in the Bible, but we do know from outside sources in church history that Peter eventually was crucified. And so we th- think he may have even asked to have been turned upside down so that he didn't die in the same way as Jesus. Um, and so w- w- what this is showing us is that um, Jesus is about to give this offer of mission and discipleship, and he has just restored Peter, but before he sends him out, he wants to talk about death. So if you're going to talk about death, you might as well talk with the guy who's already beaten it. You know, talk with the expert, right? So I I read a book a few weeks ago called Remember Death, and in this book it pointed out that uh, for perhaps the first time in human history, people are no longer dying at home. You know, for pretty much all of humanity's history, you would die in bed in, at home. But now you go to the hospital or you go to the nursing home or to some sort of hospice care. And so death is just kind of removed out of our everyday lives. You know, for, for a long time, you know, when children or when parents would have children, a lot of them didn't survive infancy. And so parents would have children expecting that they were going to have to bury some of them. Just with advances in modern medicine, people are living longer. I think I read that 25% of Medicare is going to people just in, in the very last stages of life, just trying to you know, extend life another day, another week, another few months. And so I think, I think the cumulative effect of this trying to remove death from our lives and trying to prolong it and keep it at bay for as long as possible, I think one of the effects of that is that Death has become a taboo subject. You're just considered overly morbid if you even think about it, much less talk about it. And so just as a society, it seems like we've just stuck our heads in the sand and are trying to ignore a very pressing reality, which is that all of us are going to die. Death is batting a thousand. In the long run, there are no survival stories. And so unlike our culture, Scripture is not afraid to talk about death. It talks about it all the time. Psalm 90, my favorite psalm, it talks about, it starts out by talking about the the eternality of God, how God doesn't have a beginning, he doesn't have an end, he is eternal. And then it compares God with us. Small, finite human beings who you snap our fingers and compared to God, that's what our life is. And so Psalm 90 says that the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So here's why I think Jesus wanted to have a very frank conversation with Peter about death. If you are in Christ, if you are in the one who has conquered death, then you have no need to fear death. If you are in Christ, that when your time comes, you can look death square in the face and you can walk towards it with with your shoulders back and and your head held high. Because death has no power over you. 
In fact, this is about to be your crowning moment. You are about to step into glory where there is no more pain, no more suffering. Your faith is about to turn to sight. So death is one of the best things that could ever happen to you if you are in Christ. And so knowing that future radically changes how you live in the present. Just look at the effect that it had on Peter. So just a few days ago, when he was confronted by a little girl, Peter was unwilling to associate himself with Jesus. But after Jesus restored him, and after Jesus had a very frank conversation with Peter about his death, that radically transformed how, G- how Peter lived his life in between. And so we know that Peter played a, a crucial role in the life of the early church. He, he preached at Pentecost, and in response to one sermon, 3,000 people came to faith. In Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, as these churches were debating and considering whether the gospel was for Gentiles as well, they debated for hours and hours and hours over whether you could, you know, be a part of the people of God if you weren't Jewish. And so after hours and hours, Peter gets up, and it's after he speaks that the council agrees, yes, the gospel is for Gentiles too. So unless you are ethnically Jewish, then in a sense you have Peter to thank for the fact that you are in Christ today. That was because of the work that he did. Peter went on to write, uh, you know, two of the the New Testament epistles. And and so it, it might sound strange to our cultural ears, but it was only after Peter came to grips with the death that he was going to die. That is when his life was totally transformed and when he really began to make an impact for the kingdom of God. So if you know me at all, you know that my favorite musical artist is Jason Isbell. He's a folk Americana artist from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And he wrote a song called If We Were Vampires. And the song is about his relationship with his wife. He had just gotten married. And when you're young, you're kind of naive and you think, I'm going to have, you know, 40, 50, 60 years left with this person. And we're just going to have all of our lives to make these wonderful memories and to live our lives together. So he'd just gotten married and reflecting on his relationship with his wife, here's what he said. He said, if we were vampires and death was a joke, we'd go out on the sidewalk and smoke and laugh at all the lovers and their plans. I wouldn't feel the need to hold your hand. Maybe time running out is a gift. I'll work hard till the end of my shift and give you every second I can find. And hope it isn't me who's left behind. So what he's saying is that if we were vampires, if we were immortal, if we never died, then I wouldn't bother with today because I know I'll have tomorrow. But because we're not vampires, because we're not immortal, because we have an expiration date, that actually forces you to appreciate the time that you have to invest now and to know that every second counts because you die that forces you to actually live right now and that's a really fitting way to end our study of the book of john Uh, one phrase that john keeps bringing up is eternal life we just hear it over and over and over and over and uh, the phrase that the other gospel writers matthew mark and luke the phrase that they highlight is kingdom of god but what john really wants us to know is eternal life so if you've been in the church for a long period of time that's probably a phrase that you've just heard so much it doesn't even mean anything and, and i think that the reason that that 
phrase eternal life so often falls on flat ears is because of how little we actually think about death. We don't understand the magnitude of what Jesus is offering to us in eternal life because we don't think about the fact that we are going to die. In that book that I read, Remember Death, the author wrote this, if death is not a problem to us, then Jesus won't be much of a solution. The more deeply we feel death's sting, the more conspicuously we will feel the gospel's healing power. The more carefully we number our days, the more joyfully we'll hear that death's days are numbered too. And so, so in his thesis statement for the entire book, what we have heard pretty much every single week for the last 30 some odd weeks that we've been studying this book, is that John has written all of these things so that you may believe and that by believing you may have eternal life. So that is John's purpose in writing this gospel, and that is our purpose in studying this gospel. That over the last several months, that you would see Jesus. And that by seeing him, that you would savor him, and that you would believe in him, and that you would believe that he is better than anything that this world has to offer you. He is better than any lesser, worldly, earthly pleasure. That he is more satisfying. That he can actually give you what you want. He can fulfill your heart's desires. And that because of who he is and what he has done, that you can look down the barrel of Satan's most dangerous weapon, death itself, and say, you have no power over me. Where Christ is, there I am also. So that's our prayer and our hope as we conclude our John series, that you would see Jesus for who he is and that you would believe in him, that you would glorify him and that you would be transformed by him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are humbled by who you are. Just your 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 glory, your majesty, your kindness, your love, your, your sacrifice. Father, I ask that by your spirit that you would continue to conform us more into the image of Jesus. Help us to see him, help us to behold him, and help us to become more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.